Is there a baby in the house? There's one. Just, just look at this guy right here. What's his name? Jackson. This little Jackson, how's he doing? He's been having trouble. We've been praying for Jackson. Okay. Okay, young people, look at me. Look at me. On your way to looking at Jackson. Look at, look at little baby Jackson over here. Does Jackson eat a steak by himself yet? No, probably not. Jackson, like, and he's probably toward the end of this, Jackson, you probably are. Jackson is almost done being a baby. I mean, you're a big boy, Jackson. You're a big boy. He's almost done with milk, but do you know what babies need? Do you know what babies need to drink? They have to drink milk. Do you know why? Because they don't, they don't like hamburgers yet. Well stated, well, well played. I can't argue with that one. Now, babies can't have pizza and they can't have steak. And let's stick around with steak a little bit. No grilled chicken, no tacos, no quesadillas. Babies can't eat that stuff. What do babies eat? Milk. Babies drink milk. Why? Because they're a baby because their little body can't handle it yet. What has to happen to a baby for that baby to eat pizza and big food, big people food? What has to happen? Yeah, you chop it up, right, and put, put it in a blender, and then the baby can drink it. But I mean, really eat a steak. That baby, can you imagine a baby cutting a steak? No. What has to happen? That baby has to do something to have the steak. What, is, what does she need to do? What does the baby need to do? She needs to grind it up in the grinder. Did you say grow up? Yes. The, ba- the, ba- <laughs> the baby needs to grow up so she can eat the... I got that, yeah, but the baby... <laughs> The baby has to grow up to eat solid food. And do you, know, do you know the Bible teaches that about your Christian life? When you became a believer, when you became a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you know that that was your new birth? You were born new? Did you know when you're born um, in the flesh, uh, on, your, on your human birth, your physical birthday, did you know that you got a birth certificate? Some very, very important town clerk certified live birth these are your parents you can be president okay you got a birth certificate did you know there's a piece of paper in your parents safe somewhere locked away safely away from the fire did you know that there's a piece of paper in your parents safe that says you belong to them it's called your birth certificate do you know why you get it do you know why you get it because you're born congratulations who wants to show up at the judgment seat of christ with a birth certificate Lord, this is what I accomplished. I was born again. I showed up. I became a believer in Jesus Christ. I received the new life you wanted me to have. I got the Holy Spirit so he would equip me for Christian life and service, but I never did anything with it. I never obeyed. I never listened. I never got serious about the word of God. And I never got where I could eat solid food. I never grew up spiritually. Come here. You know what these, these little guys need to do? These little guys need to do what we all need to do. In the flesh, he needs to grow up. Not faster than he needs to. He doesn't need to all of a sudden be 24. He's four. But he doesn't need to be 24 right now, but he needs to grow up. Do you eat steak yet? Yes. Yes, what? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's right. See, he's got to grow up. And 
And he's, he's doing that. Do you, can you tell me, uh, Nathan, what Jesus did for you? Died on the cross. He just died on the cross? No. Well, what, why, why did he die on the cross? For our sins. Did he, he did what for your sins? Died on the cross. For your sins. Well, thank you for telling us that. That was a really good testimony, Nathan. Nathan can say the words. Now, the, a childlike faith that receives Christ is a beginning of a new life. But we have to grow into it. Let's don't hit. We have to grow into it. Now, here's the truth. Here's the truth that you have to learn. If you don't grow up, and if you don't eat a healthy diet, you won't grow up. You'll be just like those sad Corinthians. You know what you'll be? You'll be a spiritual baby. A spiritual baby. And the Apostle Paul would have to say to you, like he said to the Corinthians, you should be able to eat solid food, but you can't. You're still a baby. See, Christian spirituality is about spiritual growth. It's about becoming a spiritual person, which it goes hand in hand with spiritual maturity. And that's our goal. You're a young person now, just like I was, sitting in a pew in a church as a little kid, believing in Jesus as my Savior. And do you know what? The same thing that happened to me needs to happen to you. Everybody look at me. The same thing that happened to me needs to happen to you. You need to get a, a vision in your mind about your spiritual life that God wants you to grow not just in your body so that you're big and strong like your dad here put your hand up put your hand up six-year-old he's almost got me we're getting there he's a giant six-year-old you don't just want to grow up in your body you want to grow up spiritually to put on Jesus to be like Jesus Christ and that's what we have to that's what we have to do and every day do you know how we do it do you know how we do it? We're going to learn it today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Word of God. God raises us in the character of Christ through His Word. And that's the focus of our lives. Let's take a moment. Let's pray for these young people. Father, we thank You for these children You've given us. Arrows in the quiver for Your purposes. Thank You for the privilege You've given these parents to raise them and train them, to fear You, to love You, to serve You. Help these children, Father. Let them be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ with all that that entails, recognizing that because He's their Savior, He's their Lord, and He owns them. And that's the best news ever. Father, help them serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And all God's people said, let the children go downstairs. We're on our sixth discussion of the, the biblical doctrine of Christian spirituality, and we're in the passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we get the word spiritual. The reason we uh, use this word in this discussion is because of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And hopefully the little introduction, um, without a visual, but just a thought process, a mental image of a baby eating a steak will give you an idea of what's going on in Corinth, what's wrong with these poor people that are so confused as to divide over humans that are their teachers. They're dividing over the pastors that have ministered to them, and uh, it's a, a, a disgrace to the gospel. They're also having trouble in Corinth listening to the Apostle Paul. You see, some people think, well, Paul's good, but I'm of, some, of another teacher. I like Apollos better. or one of these other people that have come behind the Apostle Paul. And Paul is... Uh, P- Paul... Uh-oh. Paul's job is to come, 
alongside these people and help them see what the Christian life is actually about. And, um, and so they, to do that, he's got to make a case that they should listen to him. I don't, uh, I don't want to ever feel like I have to make a case that you should listen to me. I never want to do that. I never want to present to you that you should listen to me. I'll just assume it. I'm your pastor, but you shouldn't listen to me because of my ideas. I don't have the, the wisdom of the world. I don't have good ideas of myself. That's not the reason you should listen to me, and I won't make that case, but I will constantly make the case for what the scriptures are and why we together pay attention to them. In fact, if I'm not doing that with you, if I'm not bringing the scriptures to bear, if I'm not coming alongside you with the Bible, then it's really just hit or miss about my inner leanings. And um, that's why we're in Second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The topic of Christian spirituality is um, it's really hard to get hold of for a couple reasons. One is because everybody uh, has their experience. Everybody has their thing that they've experienced with God. And we're always trying to pattern match. We're trying to say, well, this thing I had is what the Bible's talking about here. I didn't see tongues of fire descend upon me in the upper room, but I had a thing that I kind of felt, and that's spirituality. Or sometimes I feel better than others. That must be God. And what I think a lot of times happens is we want to feel God. We don't want the filling of the Holy Spirit. We want the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and that makes the topic difficult to discuss uh, because you can't argue with someone's experience. They have it. It's with what they, they, they have. And, and it doesn't become to the level of prophetic uh, Scripture. No, no one who um, respects the Scriptures would say their experience trumps the Bible. There's another reason it's hard to talk about spirituality. because the topic is especially demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 2. And that's a hard passage. It is very challenging to nail down exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And of course, that is the task at hand today that I'm going to try to, uh, to do with you. I would say this. I've worked on this passage um, in detail and in a research way um, for 15 years. And um, trying to make it do what it doesn't do because of theological presuppositions that I had beforehand. Uh, recognizing what it actually does, and then marveling, as I hope you can today, at what God is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. On the outset, I would say that, you know, 1 Corinthians 2 doesn't talk about confession of sin at all, but it is the central passage on Christian spirituality for that word, spiritual. It doesn't talk about confession of sin at all, but it does talk about carnality, walking after the flesh. And so there's a relationship to confession of sin for a believer. But if you think that spirituality is about whether or not you have confessed, you're not really watching the scriptures closely because it's not about that. Spirituality or the work of the spirit in you is not about your sins. It's about the work of the spirit. Now, your sins will stop that work. You have to deal with that. We need cleansing. We need to walk as clean believer priests. But that cleansing from sin is not the central issue in Christian spirituality. I think all these passages that we've studied, uh, it all begins with abiding in Christ. What's your relationship to Jesus Christ? Is it a connected dependence? Is it a willing submission to the will of the Father? Are you putting on Christ in that sense? Is that your starting point? Or are you arrogant or pride, proud and rebelling against Him? 
Because when you're arrogant, that's a sinful thing that defiles you. You need to confess it. But don't confess your sin of pride and retain your pride. Because then you're not clean. You're just washed off and then you're dirty again. See, there has to be this attitude that the Lord Jesus prescribes. And that's why the spirituality or Christian life passages don't focus on sin. They say sin distracts from this. But this is an actual abiding with Christ, a having fellowship with God. So let's get into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, Paul says, and just to, to kind of lead us in, we're going to start with verse 6 in our close examination. But in verse 1, the apostle says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I don't have an orator's skill or training, and I'm not really interested in it, which means that these ideas have to stand on their own merits. I'm not going to get you by a powerful emotional articulation. That's the idea of Christian ministry. How we went from Paul and plain speech to sermonizing and, and melodious speech is a story of church history. But see, a, a well-packaged message that convinces you to feel a certain way and do a certain thing is not what Paul is. He is coming directly with revelation from God and it stands on its own. And so, yes, we package, but it isn't the package that is the substance he says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's going to be very important for what he's going to talk about in the spiritual things of spiritual knowledge in this, this chapter. But I, I, I determined to know nothing among you. I don't come with external wisdom. And, and that doesn't mean we can't learn about other things. It means that this is the central focus and it is its own source of information. In other words, God's revelation, not man's insights, observations, or, um, or cogitations. In verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I'm nobody. I just showed up with the power of the Holy Spirit, and He is somebody. God is powerful. I'm not powerful. God is important. I'm not important. I'm Paul. I'm little. I'm an insignificant in comparison. That's what Paulus means. In comparison to the mighty works of God. And so that's what we're here about. And that's a great model for us. Let's just preach on that for the balance of our time. It's not about us. It doesn't matter if we're mighty or weak. In fact, our weakness is where God can shine through in His sufficiency. So now, so that your faith would not be uh, rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I think 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 4 presents, 2 Timothy chapter 4 presents an apostasy that we find ourselves in today, in which people will not be taught. They will not sit for sound instruction, but they want their ears tickled and they, they gather around teachers to their liking instead of adjusting themselves to the plain teaching of the Word of God. And that teaching for pastors starts with the pastor getting oriented by the Word itself. Not rearranging the Bible to fit what I started with, but rearranging myself to fit into the container that the Bible prescribes. And once I understand that, then I'm fit, capable to share. But before, I'm not capable. So... It isn't about my ideas... 
the cobbling together of, uh, of pastors and teachers that we, uh, that we, we like that this and not that, or I'm going to taste this over here and taste that over there and find me something that will tickle my ears or be scintillating, or, or I like his personality, or I like the way he dresses, or I like this or that thing that isn't the thing. The, none of these are of, of issue. And Paul says, let's make the issue the issue in verse 5. You should uh, write Second Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 on your heart, that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever put your faith in the wisdom of men? Have you ever said that this teacher, this leader, this person is the basis for my constructed spiritual life? Do I understand God only through the lens of what a, a human who isn't the Spirit of God, what he says? Paul says, no, don't do that. And that's the problem in Corinth. And he's going to say, if you'll just flip over to chapter 3, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh or carnal, as to infants in Christ. Because look, there's jealousy in verse 3 and strife among you. You're, you're carnal. You're walking like mere men. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not acting like unbelievers? Let me paraphrase. We act like unbelievers when we divide over human personalities instead of uniting under the humanity of Christ. The incarnation changes everything. And the great man theory of history that we, if we just get the right leader, the great, the great guy that will really lead us where we need to go, then we'll be on the best team. The quarterback isn't an open position. Don't worry about who the coach is. It's God. The quarterback is taken. He calls the shots. We know what we're supposed to do because Jesus told us. And so we're not of a different stripe of Christianity. We're just Christians. And I want to re, uh, constantly emphasize that. The Apostle Peter, who calls himself a shepherd in 1, Corinthians, or 1, 1 Peter 5, says that um, in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus is the great shepherd of the flock. All right, so let's get into the this, this section. Now I'm going to give you my translation of 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, and then we'll work through it in some detail. However, uh, we don't speak the wisdom of men in verse 5. However, we do speak wisdom in the evaluation of the mature. We, meet, we speak wisdom among the mature means that to the mature that hear us, the mature in the word that hear us, they hear the wisdom of God. And they're able to evaluate it as such because they have that maturity. Now it is not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the concealed and hidden mystery. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, which means that, that it's not a, 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 tr- a riddle for us to solve. It's something God never showed before, and now he's chosen Paul to drop this on the, the world. Paul and the apostles have the mystery, and they're going to share the mystery, and you don't get it unless you get it from them 1 John 1, 3. Write it down if you don't have it in your heart. 1 John 1, 3. Our fellowship with God comes through the work and writing of the apostles. The New Testament is indispensable to our fellowship with God. They're eyewitnesses. They're the designated ones to give us the special revelation of the New Testament. And so our fellowship is with him and, and we offer this fellowship to you. And that's what, that's what John is establishing when he talks about fellowship in 1 John 1. We speak, we the apostles, speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the concealed or hidden mystery, which God ordained before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age have known. For if they had known the mystery, but they didn't, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Now, as we just casually read through what Paul is saying here, there's some heavy concepts that he's developing here. Wisdom of God, a mystery, which means it's not known prior to God revealing it through the apostles. That there is a great separation that's being established. Don't miss this. This may be the most important part of worldview in the passage for you to understand a biblical worldview. You can't get what God wants you to have unless you get it from the apostles. And so when the therapist knows better than Paul, he doesn't. When the historian can say, well, this is truly the way this works and it goes against the apostles or doesn't rise to the level of what the apostles have taught us about history, it's a, it's a competitive counterfeit thought. When the outside lesser human sources of knowledge have something to say in contrast to what the apostles tell us, we say, nay, nay. <laughs> to borrow from the late John Panette. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In verse 6, he says, but... In contrast to what he said in verse 5, that we don't speak in the wisdom of men, he says, but we speak wisdom in the mature. In the mature. It's right here. In teleos. Your Bible probably says among the mature. I think that's a good translation. Usually when Paul says complete, he means mature, of a a complete status where you could be considered um, of age. He never thinks that he's fully complete, and yet there's a difference between um, a 14-year-old and a 20-year-old. That's the idea of teleos that he usually uses, um, and you can watch that, uh, especially in Philippians 3. He uses it as a, as a, I'll never be fully there, but I am. Those that are mature can, can learn this, and, he, and so there is a sense of spiritual maturity. Now, we speak wisdom among the mature, I believe, is saying they know it. They can recognize it. And I have that in context and I'll show you why. But my paraphrase is in the estimation or the evaluation of the mature. The, per- the people that know God well know what I'm saying is sound. And they're Bereans. They can test the scriptures. They can test the spirits. They have been paying attention to the word of God. And there were some in Corinth like that, but it was a minority. It's probably always a minority that you have spiritual people that are of a spiritual maturity. They can think God's thoughts and connect them to what God is saying. Indeed, a wisdom not of this age. The wisdom we speak is not of this age. The main word there is age. What's this age business? Well, one translation says of this world. The word is ion, A-I-O-N, and where we get the word eon. And so we typically associate it with a time frame. But the time frame isn't talking about dispensations of God's administration through history, which are a real observation of Scripture. He's talking about this frame of history where Jesus can say the ruler of this world is coming and he has no part with me. The ruler of this world, cosmos. And the age in which we live, in a general sense, from the fall of man until the kingdom that is coming, it is an age of the rulership of the enemy of God over this darkened, sad world. And that frames the discussion in terms of warfare. There's a war, it's a battle of ideas. The wisdom of this age or this world system in the time in which we live does not really compete with the Scriptures successfully. And that's why you need to become a student of the Scriptures first 
and then get into the disciplines. Learn about God's good earth. Learn the sciences and where the faith leaps happen, where we deviate from what we can actually observe to what people believe and then say it's science. Learn this, but first start with what God has said. For example, I love in Proverbs chapter 8, God sets the boundary of the water and it does not transgress his command. God says where the beach is. If the beach is going to be in uh, 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 downtown Manhattan because the water level rises, in Proverbs 8, it didn't say it's because we made cars. It says it because God sets the boundary for the water and it just keeps kind of being that way. No matter what people tell you, in other words, in their fear, fear-mongering or their efforts to re- redistribute and re-socialize the, the country because we don't believe in God and we're going to rearrange all the furniture and, um, and you know, make everything a little more fair and we're going to use green uh, propaganda to do it. No matter what someone tells you, go to the Scriptures first. When the world tells you that a human being is what you choose it to be, but the Bible says a human being is what God made it, start with what God said and then start looking. My favorite example, and I'll stop on the examples with this one, biological, the biology of mankind and the animals. We can say some of the primates have eyes in the front and we have eyes in the front. We have a nose, we have a mouth. Some of us look a little uh, monkeyish especially my kids, especially when they're hanging from stuff. They are, uh, until they're like three or four, they are made of half banana. Now, now, this is about the human race, okay? But when you talk about biology and the relationship between the humans and the animals, well, the Bible actually says there's a relationship. The Bible, before anybody ever said, hmm, I think there's spontaneous generation, of uh, maggots or, or flies come out of meat or some other thing, which is basically what Darwin is saying, that spontaneously life. Before we ever had any pagan thought of spontaneous generation, God actually created everything and then he told us about it. That's how it is. The first people knew it. The first people knew. Adam knew that God had made him. He knew God put him to sleep. He knew he woke up and had a, had a birthday present. And they were in their birthday suit and it's okay. So... <laughs> They knew, but man has always known God has done this. And there's always been a remnant of people that remember and that God has revealed and so forth. And that's the story of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. But what I'm saying is the Bible prescribes a relationship between you and the animals. And it is not a family relationship. You didn't get generated through the animals. But according to Genesis chapter 2, before Watson and Crick ever saw a microscope, there was the revelation that God made you out of the same material as he made the animals. Check it out in Genesis 2. He made man from the dust of the ground. He made the animals from the dust of the ground. When we look at ourselves under a microscope, we find that we are composed of building blocks from the same materials as animals and using the same language called DNA, the, the, the program that designs uh, humans and animals. We should expect from what God tells us in Genesis that we are made from the same materials and according to a similar structure, physically. Not a surprise. But there should be a difference. You know what we also notice? There's a difference between us and animals. Even the PETA people, if you really push them, they'll say we are not the same as the animals. If you push them. If you say, okay, do we save the baby squirrel or do we save the baby human? Pick one. Now, only the, 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 a, a totally calloused broken person who, who actually doesn't 
connect to, to the, their, that spark that God put in that person. A seared conscience would say, no, save the squirrel. The human's going to break the earth or something. But people, what I'm saying is people, even, even green people know that there's a difference between us and the animals. In Genesis 2, it just keeps on doing this. It tells us there's a difference. He made us in his image and not them in his image. So there's a difference. In the Bible, see, anthropology and biology is a great field to get into, but get your biblical moorings and then, and then learn. And so the wisdom of this age, it doesn't really rise to the level of the scriptures, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. Uh-oh. How'd that happen? For if, uh, oh, there it is. Okay, sorry. And then verse seven, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden. And we don't have a word for hidden, uh, for, for wisdom here, but it's the hidden and it, it is the same case as, as uh, mystery. And so it has to be, uh, the, uh, it's the same case as wisdom, uh, Sophia. Sophia, by the way, means wisdom. And we have it here all through this passage, Sophia. All right, so we speak wisdom, we the apostles speak wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages unto our glory. Now this, uh, I don't know if you caught the, 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 the contradiction or the, the, the contrast, not contradiction, the contrast. The rulers of this age who are passing away before the ages, the ruler who ordains. God as the ruler or the human elite? I don't think this just means the kings. It does involve the kings. It means those that are the great people of all fields, the biology department chair. Well, they really know. Well, what do they know that they don't believe? What do they know that they don't take on faith? They're, they're, it takes more faith to think the way they do, I think, than the way I do. But we don't acknowledge it as faith. We, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages unto our glory, which none of the rulers of this age have known. For if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If, if we just knew, if we were, had a Thomas-like experience where we saw, you know, the, the, uh, some sort of proof that Jesus is who he says he is, well, th- did you not see proof? Did you not see him raise the dead? Yeah, see the, the, the one in the wilderness calling out. Did you not see uh, the prophet that the Lord sent? See, there's a lot, John the Baptist. There's plenty of evidence that the rulers of this world had. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want God to be God. We don't want to have to obey someone. And so that is the rejection of the Lord of glory. They had plenty of evidence. Uh, remember in uh, Luke 16, um, Abraham says, even if uh, someone ri- rises from the dead, they won't believe. And there's the resurrection, the most well-attested event in, uh, in the, the early portion of this, uh, of this age, this, I'm sorry, this, um, <clears throat> in the year of our Lord time frame. So I've, I have some thoughts that I want to share with you about what I'm calling the great separation that Paul just established in verses 6 through 8. The Great Separation, six thoughts that will summarize what he just went through. Paul is forcing a strong separation between divine wisdom and worldly wisdom. That is the, the, the substance. That's the, the launching point from his discussion. We're not coming to you with the wisdom of the world, so don't expect a town orator. I'm not your rhetorician. I'm a prophet with the word of God. That's basically what he's saying. So there's a strong separation between divine wisdom and worldly wisdom. Now, I know some of you are about to do your 15-minute checkout, and that's okay. 
get back with me in about five or six minutes and get, you know, and then, and then that's how it works. What I should do is a quick commercial. I don't have any commercials. So, um, <laughs> that itself was the commercial. Okay. He goes to the most elite of any culture when he says the rulers of this age. Think of the elite. Think of the people that are really important. The experts, the people that you know. We always try to go back to experts. Whenever somebody has a compelling argument, they say, well, this study concluded, or this research effort was made, or this statistic show. What are, why do people appeal to statistics when they make an argument? It's because they're trying to establish a sound basis on which you come to knowledge. And the statisticians... Those of you that remember probability and statistics, that horrible college course that you had to, you, you said, who would ever do this? Who would do this for a living? Statisticians would do this for a living. Remember the Poisson distribution? Just don't, don't we're, I'm getting acid reflux of the soul as I think about doing province stat. The reason we appeal to statistics is because we want it to matter. We want it to count. The reason we do math is we want to be certain about our our convictions and our reasoning. Math is just logical reasoning. Now, when you appeal to an authority for your conclusion about pretty much anything, you're demonstrating the need to connect to the eternal. Because every human authority is flawed, selfish to a a fault, selfish and self-interested, now, now, we may see it in ourselves and be combating that, but without the Holy Spirit, you're failing, right? Without God's work in you, it's a fail. So this, this idea of the elite of your culture, this, Paul just eviscerates the world of the elite. Now, the greatest elites that, that I have most appreciated in recent history, in the 20th century, have all bent the knee to Jesus Christ. They've all said as a ruler of this age, I'm one who has a higher ruler. My favorite illustration of this that comes to mind, here's your commercial, is Ronald Reagan on the gurney after Hinckley shot him. And he almost died. And the, the chaplain, or whoever it was that was the Christian in front of him, I forget the name of the person, some of you probably know the story. Do you know? Do you know if, if you're about to, to die, if this is it, are you confident? That, that you're going to heaven. Are you sure? He says, yes. Why? Because I have a Savior. Because I believe in Jesus as my Savior, is Reagan's testimony. It was his consistent testimony. He didn't preach sermons in the Oval Office, but a lot of people thought he was when he would reference Jesus Christ, our Savior. He sounded a lot like Washington and the early presidents of the United States that way, where he would, he would totally give deference to the real ruler of the universe. And I love that part of our history. I really do when I see that. People give Douglas MacArthur a, a mixed review, but you can't argue with the fact that one of his first orders was give me a million Bibles printed in Japanese when he became the, the, the reconstructor for Japan after World War II. He understood the mission. He understood this is what is, is the need. And I don't know how many people came to Christ because of uh, America's influence in Japan, but I know it was more than if we hadn't been there. I, had a, uh, I met a man once who said um, he did not like the British because he was a Christian from India. And he said, you have to understand population. When you go to a small place like India with, a, with the largest population at that time in the world, you just have to understand the scale. If 5% of my people came to Christ, that would be larger than the population of your country. 
or something like some ridiculous scale thing like that. And he said, I, I don't like the British because they, they shut down the missionary work because of their market interests after a time. And, and that was his summary of, of history. They, they weren't on mission. And we today as a country are not on mission. But the rulers of this age don't get it as a general principle. And you can see that because they crucify the Lord of glory. Third, divine wisdom is the gift God has given his apostolic church. That is the subject of 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 3. The topic at hand is what gives you a spiritual life, the spiritual experience of knowing God and discerning all things. It is the word of God. It is the special perspective that God will give you through the apostolic testimony. And that's this wonderful gift. I cannot understand in myself, and so I can't convey to you how high we should think of the New Testament. I cannot give you an adequate depiction of what God thinks of his word, the Old and New Testaments, the scriptures, so that we will fully grasp how important it is for our lives. But I can tell you this, there's nothing that you can touch in your possession that is of a greater value to your life, but it is no good closed. You have to read. You have to prayerfully read and consider as we're doing now. For a summary point, the glorification of the church, he says, to our glory by this grant of divine wisdom was from eternity past. The Christian who is not a Bible-focused Christian is missing his birthright. It's from eternity past. So where is the attack today? Do you understand where the attack today? For our young people, raise them in the church. They grow up. They believe in Christ as little kids. Okay, we pray for them. We work on them. We do youth group for them. Okay, I'm all across the country. This is the universal experience. A little doubt gets sown through all their experiences in their relationships of the reality or or trustworthiness of the Bible. We cast some shade. We throw some doubt on the scriptures and say, well, I don't let go of Jesus, but you really can't go with Genesis 1 through 11. Really can't believe in a creator out of nothing. You really, you can't believe in, in a six-day creation. You can't believe that God directly created humans and animals. Why do they, why do they go there? They, they're indoctrinated throughout the entire culture. And, and worldview, this, this idea, this perspective that Paul's talking about, worldview is more caught than taught. For a kid to stand up like this girl Isabella Chow does and say, I believe in Jesus. For, for someone in, in this, the, the, the generation of kids in school today, the young people today, for them to stand up and say, no, I think Genesis 1 through 11 doesn't contradict anything we can legitimately conclude from science. The earth does look flooded. It doesn't look old. It looks flooded. I, I don't think there's any contradiction necessarily. You just have to, you have to look at the data with the right perspective. And your faith perspective contradicts God. For someone to be able to do that, do you understand what kind of training, what kind of attention, what kind of, of effort you have to put into them? And the most important effort is that you love them, is that you hold on to them. See, because what the, the big lie is that they're supposed to join the rulers of the world. They're supposed to join their culture, their generation, socially integrate with their generation. That's not God's design. That's Babel. God divided the human race into families and clans and languages. Start with family. And then go out into the world as a, as a representative of Jesus Christ from a household that fears the Lord. 
It takes a lot of work for us to appreciate what I'm saying about this glorification of the church through the Word of God. Fifth, and by way of application, what really matters has to become eternal to you. The rulers of this world will say, you'll never get a job, you'll never get a grant, you'll never get a scholarship, you'll never get all the things that we can give you. The rulers of this world will say, you'll never be the department head even though you're the smartest guy in the room. The, leader, the rulers of this world will say all kinds of things about the glories of this frame of life, but who cares? We really want fame, all of us. We want someone to notice us. We want at some level to, be, to have notoriety, don't you? YouTube, broadcast yourself. Facebook, what I think is important. I think what I think is important, and I like to think what I think, and I'm going to tell everybody what I think. And, every, and everybody's like, that is more than three inches of text. I'm not reading that. No, it's very important to me. At least the tweet thing, you only get 140 characters. Shut up. But we want people to care about what we think. How many followers? Who likes what I said? That, that is just a human impulse for people to like us. And that's what fame is, and it's a big lie. Here's the truth, and I've told you this before. This is an eternal perspective. You are playing for an audience of one, one God and three persons. What God thinks about you is all that matters. What you think about you better start with what God thinks about you. Don't worry about what you feel. I don't look in the mirror. I don't really like what I see. Why don't you start by looking in the mirror of the word of God and see God and care what he thinks and then let his opinion of you start to carry some weight in your soul. And then you've got a a real perspective about yourself made in God's image born again to eternal life for an eternal purpose, for a, for a mission which only you can perform with a spiritual gift that only you have, with a spiritual life between you and God that is only between you and Him, for the benefit of the church, universal and local, with a, with a wonderful and eternal purpose, with an eternal evaluation, with an eternal reward and inheritance. I mean, this is an eternal perspective, and that's why Paul says you've got to get loose, you've got to let go of this, this concern about the things of this world. What really matters is eternal. We've said it um, in, uh, in every chapter of Ecclesiastes, and here it is again. Sixth and last, the divine and worldly are especially divided on the issue of origin and destiny. This will summarize everything pretty much I believe about worldview. If you, t- if you adopt a biblical worldview about you and God and life and reality, then you will go back to eternity past and go forward to eternity future and say, whoever is running that show, that's what really matters. If you, have, if you adopt a biblical worldview, if you let go of the extrema of origin and destiny, of the beginning, which has no beginning, and the end, where there's no end, and eternity, if you let go of eternity and get focused on now, and it's easy to do, and you will on the way home, and it's a constant need to refresh, and that's what the Word of God constantly does, if you'll hang on to that eternal perspective, you will be playing for that audience of one. If you fail to... To maintain that perspective, you'll start worrying about the things that we tend to worry about. And the rulers of this world will have something to say to you, and you will be submitting to the wrong, the wrong Lord. Well, let's talk about the things in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. The things. You can read it in your, in your English Bible, but I want to work through uh, all the way to chapter 3. So, but just as it is written... What things the eye has not seen and ears have not heard and, enter in, and into the heart of man have not entered, what things God has prepared for those who love him or these things God has prepared for those who love him. That is a quote from no uh, discernible Bible verse in the Old Testament. Believe me, I spent a lot of time trying to find it. 
because I've read all the commentators that say there's no passage in the Old Testament that says this, but I said, well, maybe all those scholars are wrong and I'll find it. After all, I have a computer. <laughs> I've got all the books. I can go look it up. A couple thoughts. You have a reference to something like this in Isaiah 64 and verse 13, where he talks about those who wait for God and, and hearing and seeing in, in the heart, maybe. It's not a quote. I think it sounds more like Isaiah chapter 6, where God says, you keep preaching so that they'll hear and not understand, and they'll see and not, and not, um, not believe, and they'll, uh, I forget, and they, won't, they won't have it in their heart and understand and turn to me. The, 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 the hearing, the seeing, and the understanding. Now, I will say this. This might be one of my favorite verses of all of Paul's literature where he says, eh, just like the scriptures say, as it is written, what things the eye has not seen, whatever you can see doesn't capture what we're talking about. Whatever you can hear or experience through your ears, music's great, but this doesn't get there. Even something with a really good five-part harmony doesn't get there. What you can think of, now enter the heart of man. If you can think of it, not good enough. If I can see it, not good enough. We don't, don't we want to see Jesus? There's a reason he's got it set up where we walk by faith, not by sight. Because seeing the humanity of Christ, which you will forever, you'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord soon enough. But seeing Jesus is not the same as experiencing what Paul is talking about. And you can have what he's talking about now. What eye hasn't seen, what ear hasn't heard, what you haven't even considered. Christmas time. We make our list as little kids. I was taught early on not to make a list for a couple of reasons. But here's the best reason that my parents didn't say to me, but they taught me by uh, an inductive process. They didn't know they were teaching me, but they did. I couldn't have thought for the little Christmas stuff, I could never have thought of what I wanted compared to what they loved me and wanted to share with me. I couldn't have blessed myself with my ideas like my parents could, because I was a kid, and parents are smarter than their kids, at least for a little while. And so, so this is how God is with us. He wants to give you beyond anything you can ask, imagine, or observe. If you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can even conceive of it. You think of the genie stories. There's all, all the cultures have genie stories. My favorite is the Irish genie. Who's the Irish genie? He gives wishes. The leprechaun, three wishes to get, and then the pot of gold and all that, right? The leprechaun is the, is the Irish version. Then you got the little farther east, got the 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 Afrits and the the jinn of the um, Persians. We call it genies. What's the deal with the genie? Well, it's a trick. It's a it's a task. It's a riddle. Think of the best three things you can think of and ask for those things. And every time you read one of these stories, the original Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, which is interesting because he's in China, when you read it, he is. It was exotic to them when they wrote it. Anyway, so, so Aladdin's going to think of his three things, and the first thing he asks for is something to eat, and you're like, no! Don't ask for lunch! Ask for all the food you'll ever need, you know? And, and then we think, well, ask, ask for, you know, infinite number of wishes or something. And the point of the, the little riddle of the genie question of what would be my three, three wishes is this. 
you can't think well enough to imagine what God wants for you. And that's what he's saying about the things in this passage. The things. It's a technical term. I've translated here. The word in Greek is ha, because it's a relative pronoun, and it is constantly used, a relative article, and it's constantly used through this passage to refer, we have to say the things, because we can't say the and, and understand. So it's the things that God has prepared for those who what? Who love him. This is an interesting thought. Those who love God is something Paul likes to say. Where else does Paul say that? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love him. This is a promise to put in your hat next to that one. Especially given Satan's diabolical implication that God is holding back the goods from you, Eve. He doesn't want you to be like God, so he tells you not to eat from the tree. God's prohibition is because he's a meanie and he's holding back the goods. You are not capable of conceiving of what God wants to give you. Verse 9. Then we say God is good all the time, and all the time is God is good. This is, this is what God is telling you through the apostles about himself. But let's pay attention because the way you get this is vital. But to us, God has revealed them through his spirit. This I can't conceive of goodness from God. He's given it to us. And the we so far is the apostles. Boy, I want to listen to the apostles, don't you? I want to pay attention to my New Testament. I want to get these things that God has given us. It's starting to sound like, a, like fantasy, that this is what we believe the Bible is. But that's what he's talking about, the things. It's not sailboats. I can think of a sailboat. It's God, me knowing God himself, knowing him personally, the way he's revealed himself. That's what we're talking about. Spiritual information presented from the Spirit of God through the apostles. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Yea, the deep things of God. I like the King James there. The deep things of God. See, we're talking about eternity past, eternity future. We're talking about I can't even imagine the good things God has for us. And now we're in the deep things of God. So now we, know, we don't know the deep things, but we've got the Spirit who does, is what he's going to say. For who among men has known the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? See, like knows like is the principle. So also the things of God, no one has known except the spirit of God. The spirit of God is especially an Old Testament way of calling out the third person of the Trinity. He's often identified as the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of God. It's the third person. It's the Holy Spirit. So no one, and so the idea is an analogy the Spirit of God is not exactly the same at all as your spirit, the spirit of you. So God is you, but then you've got your spirit. That's not the way to think about the Holy Spirit. The reason he's identified the third person as the spirit, I'm convinced, is because he is invisible in his behind-the-scenes operations of, of uh, empowerment and, uh, and uh, pre, you know, ex- exhaling the word for the prophets and the apostles and so forth. So, but the spirit is used as an analogy here to your spirit in that you know what you know because of your spirit in you and the things of God are known by the Holy Spirit. But the spirit of the world we have not received, the spirit of the world we have not received, this is not a personal spirit. This is the use of the word spirit, pneuma, that means material, information, content. Worldview would be one translation. The spirit, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. 
we do not from God receive what the therapist or the philosopher or the whoever, the, 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 the pagan-minded person who doesn't, and I, I don't mean that in a negative sense, I just mean uh, rejecting God. We don't, we don't have what they have because we're, we have what the apostles are giving us. We, the apostles, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, so that we may know the things by God freely given to us. I've translated spirit with a lowercase s here, and it's my least certain conclusion from all the exegetical conclusions I make. I think he's talking about the human spirit here when he says it, but there's a reason in Greek. He says it in a unique way, ta ek tu theu, ta pneuma ta ek tu theu. We never have it said that way anywhere else in a reference to the Holy Spirit. I could be totally wrong. He could be talking about the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't matter because you do, when you first believe, receive a new spirit, and you do receive the Holy Spirit when you first believe. But I would say this, the equipment that God provides the believer is the only way you can know the things by God freely given to us. The only way you can know, for example, your position in Christ. The only way you can know about um, the deeper identification truths that we talked about in Romans 6. Consider yourselves dead to God, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, these kinds of truths about what God has freely given to us. I'll show you in Greek in a minute. Verse 9, but just as it's written, what things the eye has not seen, the ears are not heard, into the heart of man has not entered, are what things God has prepared for those who love him. Do you believe that? Do you believe this about God? I believe it. I am, I am captivated by this because I'm a wanter. Aren't you wanty? We're not really needy. We're wanty. Do you feel that sometimes, that you don't have what you'd like and what you'd like you don't have? I want. Or, or are you the only one that's not this way? I mean, this is, this is how we are. Name it. You don't have to be talking about material possessions. You could be talking about connection and relationships. The good stuff, once you figure out the most valuable thing God ever made was human beings, and then that's the most valuable thing in your life, when you start thinking about God's scale of values, you could still say this in terms of human relationships. Whatever you value, whatever you're excited about, you can't imagine what God wants to give you, and it turns out it's his wisdom. It's the knowledge of himself. I believe it. I'm excited about it. I pray that you will be also daily. But to us, God has revealed these things through his spirit. I think that's the Holy Spirit who is the revealer. For the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And verse 11, for who among men has known the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? So also the things of God no one has known except the spirit of God. I keep highlighting words for knowing, for knowing, for knowing, for knowing. Because in our culture, in Christianity today, it's popular to talk about uh, knowledge. Uh, knowledge puffs up. We've got one verse out of the Bible we know about and everything else we, we're ignorant. All I know is I don't have to know because knowledge puffs up. Let's sing a song. Christianity is an experience. It's not, it's not what you know. Friends, Christian spirituality is knowing God personally through what he's said. So you have to know what he said to know him. That's why the New Testament is indispensable. And that's why we don't have to have a chain of, of apostolic successors who have come after the apostles and say, well, we're, I'm the apostle now, he died, now I'm the apostle, we have to pass the baton. They passed the baton by writing what they wrote in their beginning of the church. 
That's why we focus here on Paul. Everyone, I mean, I constantly do this. What are we doing? Ever think about what you're doing? You're reading your Bible every day. Why are you doing that? Because it's God's word. How did it be, how's it God's word? Because he gave it to us through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. That's how it's God's word. It's from God through these humans that thought different thoughts, but the spirit inspired their very words. And that's called verbal plenary inspiration. The words of scripture being from God himself. And if I'm confused, that's okay. Just get used to being confused. Well, I don't see how it could be this way. It's all right. I don't know how God can have no beginning. Do you, do you believe that, that God has no beginning? Do you understand it? I mean, if you really think about it, never having a beginning, some of you are getting a headache. But what was before? That's the point. There's no before. There's no and then, and there's no before. He's just always God is. Tell him that I am sent you. Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He identifies himself in the present tense from eternity past. I don't have to be able to know that and understand that because my brain is not made for it. But God, this is the nature of our God, and so we can, we can all confess mystery. But we don't have to say everything's a mystery. He's told us these wonderful things and the deep things of God that we have through the apostles. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit or the Holy Spirit, which is from God, so that we may know the things by God freely given to us. It's this phrase here, ta panuma ta ektutheu. It's the only time in the New Testament you have this, except in Jude, and uh, that seems to be the spirit of a man. And so... Um, I wonder if this is not a reference to the new birth. Real quick, theology commercial. On theology, do you have to have the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God? If you do, if you do, then there's a whole lot of people before the Holy Spirit came to the church who were supposed to be the audiences of the Word of God who did not receive it. If you have to have the Holy Spirit in you to understand the Word of God, listen, then the Old Testament saints could not understand the Word of God. See the problem? That's a huge theological problem nobody talks about when they say, well, this just has to be, we can understand spiritual information because the Holy Spirit's in us, so it's settled. This is probably more about the new birth and the new spiritual capacity God gives you when you become regenerate. And I believe in Old Testament regeneration. I could be wrong. It's a theological statement. Theology is not the scriptures. But my theology, I do believe Old Testament saints as believers were regenerate. They did not have the Holy Spirit the way we do. That's the defining feature of our time. But they did have the capacity to receive the spiritual wisdom God gave them. So that's my theology there on why this is important. And, um, and it, again, I could be wrong. Probably not, but I could, I could be wrong. <laughs> yes, I'm going for humility. Uh, My favorite is the person that's proud of his own humility. Um, and my prayer for myself and for you is that God will let you see that blindness that you have about yourself and give you a bigger perspective where you actually see what's going on with you. Um, and then I can see what's going on with me. All right, the spirit and knowledge, five things. First of all, the hidden eternal wisdom of God is spiritual knowledge and practice. Wisdom is never just knowing. It's always knowing and then doing. 
It's spiritual knowledge and practice. If we're talking about hidden knowledge that is hidden wisdom that God has revealed in a mystery, you have to have the information, but then you have to do it or you don't have wisdom. The person that knows how to do the thing, that knows CPR, but then doesn't save the person and could have, we wouldn't say, oh, what a wise person. We'd say, what a fool who knew and didn't do. Okay, so I think you have to put all this together in terms of wisdom and practice. Second, it's revealed to the apostles by the Holy Spirit and from them to us. Wisdom in this passage is revealed by the Spirit of God to the apostles, and therefore the reason Paul's talking to them about this is they need to listen to him. He has the wisdom from God, and so they'll get this wonderful thing that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard because they're listening to what the apostles have to say. Third, the entirety of Paul's discussion is about the things, the eternal, spiritual, hidden wisdom which the mature recognize and the world rejects. That's the topic in the passage that defines Christian spirituality, or at least describes it. Fourth, because God has given the Spirit, we have this information and know-how. Because God has given the Holy Spirit, we have this information and this know-how. I, I think that the Holy Spirit in your spiritual life has to equip you to practice what God calls you to practice. We have a different spiritual life than what God gave Israel. The, the, the old covenant had an old order, had an old method, had an old set of responsibilities. And it's different from ours. Against these things that the Spirit does in us, there is no law. The perfect law of Christ is that we would love one another as he's loved us. And that is a standard you and I will never attain without the Spirit of God working in us. That's what Christian spirituality is all about. It's abiding in Christ by obeying him in the power that the Spirit gives us. It's abiding in Christ by obeying him in the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's all that. And if you've got spirituality without obedience, you don't really have spirituality. You've got carnality. Fifth, we need the Spirit from God which enables us to receive this spiritual information. We need this new birth, this new spirit that he gives us which enables us to receive this spiritual information. Now, in verse 13, I've taken it by itself. What Paul says to spiritual people. And we speak not in human taught words of wisdom, but in Holy Spirit taught words, combining spiritual with spiritual. Combining spiritual words with spiritual men. This is, this is how you and I get hold of what the apostles have, which is this hidden mystery this wisdom that God wants to give you, which is beyond anything eye has seen or ear has heard. The thing is the apostolic communication, and the way you get it is to be a spiritual person being taught spiritual words. And in this age, certainly the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Not in human taught words of wisdom, that's not what Paul has to say, but in Holy Spirit taught words, combining spiritual with spiritual, and I take it it's spiritual words because of context, spiritual, spiritual words with spiritual persons because of what he's, what he's about to say next. So if you want to be spiritual, you've got to be focused on the Word of God. You have to submit to the Creator so that He can have His way. You have to say, whatever you have for me is what I want. And that attitude is the opposite of arrogance. If we don't adopt that attitude, then we will always be sinful in our pride. We will always be defiled in our carnality. So here we'll seek God's teaching We'll open our hearts to what he has for us. And we will find ourselves spiritual receiving spiritual. Spiritual words 
being taught to spiritual men and women. In verse 14, the sukikos, the soulish man. Your Bible says the natural man. That's the worst translation of all translations in all English translations. The natural man, Ric Flair, the nature boy. Woo! Anybody with me on that? That's a WWE reference. Y'all know about that here in Connecticut. Anyway, um, <laughs> the soulish, that's this word here. Sukikos. Suke is the word usually translated soul in Greek, and here he's using it as an adjective to say a person only described by soul. Again, I think we need the spirit that's from God, the new birth, because here this person doesn't have that. He's just soulish. Again, that's another reason why I take verse 12 the way I do. Now, the soulish man does not welcome the things of the spirit of God. I once used to think this man, he doesn't understand, but that word is dekomai, D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I, and it means to welcome with arms wide open. To say, give me what you have. He doesn't welcome them. He says, I don't want the spiritual things of God. I don't want this information. I don't want this truth. That's the soulish man. That's the man characterized not by the human spirit, but by the carnal soul. Man does, he doesn't welcome the things of the spirit of God and their foolishness to him, for their foolishness to him, and he's not even, even able to know them. He can't understand them at the level of personal knowledge of God, okay? Because they're spiritually discerned. My translation in New American Standard says appraised. This word anacrino is going to come up again and again in the passage, which then gets into the application of spiritual information. Appraisal, knowledge, discernment. They are spiritually discerned. So you can't even assess the word of God as in terms of its validity in your carnality as a as a soulish person as an unbeliever because you don't have the equipment they are spiritually discerned you can't even know them now um, Emmanuel Tov is probably not a believer in Jesus Christ before he died and he has a a well-regarded by evangelicals a well-regarded Genesis commentary so what gives does he understand Genesis or not See, the word for know here is not talking about being able to understand what the verbs and nouns are saying and what is being communicated. One of my favorite commentaries on Galatians is probably written by someone that doesn't believe a word of it. That's, that's the, the Hermione or commentary on Galatians by um, Hans Betts. I, think he, I, I don't think he necessarily believes in Christ. But he, he definitely understands the grammar of what whoever wrote it says. <laughs> right? So how can you have people that understand what the Bible says, but they don't know? Because this is not about whether you understand the words. I've known a lot of people that have known God and not been so keen on what exactly God is saying in every case. Because they they know a little bit and they believe what they know. And so this is about uh, the the, the person without the human spirit is not capable of Uh, knowing because he's shut off to it he's not welcoming but he's also not equipped for that personal relationship let's put verses uh, 15 and 16 together but the spiritual man as opposed to the soulish man the spiritual man see that's the dichotomy there's you're either saved or you're not saved you're either a soulish person without a spirit or a spiritual person who is a soul with a spirit the human spirit this new spirit that god gives you the spiritual man discerns all things but he by no one is himself discerned For who has known the mind of the Lord, who will instruct or teach him, is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 40. But we have the mind of Christ. 
in context, I want to tell you, I believe the mind of Christ is not the, the, the content necessarily. It could be. I'm about 49% that it means the content of what Paul's saying, the thinking. I'm about 51% that he's talking about the capability that the humanity of Christ had with our human spirit to know the things of God. You have the mind of Christ if you are being taught by the Holy Spirit to your human spirit, the spiritual truths of God. You definitely have that capacity. And so mind could either be the thing you think with or what you think. And I think he's talking about um, we have this capacity. Now, the spiritual man in this description is very discerning. He's very knowledgeable. He discerns all things. It doesn't mean that he's got a Holy Spirit sensitivity that he can spot a lie because he now has the Holy Spirit lie detector. It means that he's got enough of God's word in him and this spiritual truth has so captivated him that he now can spot the error from that work of God in his heart. In other words, spirituality in verses 15 and 16 is about maturity. It's about maturity, and he's going to say that in just a moment. I see in this passage that we just read two kinds of people. The soulish man doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He is not able to know them because they're spiritually discerned, but the spiritual man discerns all things. He by no one is himself discerned, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who will teach or instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. It's two kinds of people, the way Paul sets it up, spiritual and not carnal, but soulish. These are, the, these are the, the two types Paul sees, and so we want to say, well, then that means the spiritual person is the believer, right, but Paul's talking about the normative believer, the believer that's walking, that is an ongoing faith, that actually is getting the word of God, that has the discernment to spot the error. And parents, as you raise your children, as you teach them the word, you're going to see a lot of not paying attention to, to God, that, and it's going to be frustrating. But you're also going to see as they start to see and interact with the world around them, that they're going to say, hey, that's not quite right. I see it in my four-year-old. That's not how it says. And, and they're, at every level of your development, in other words, there becomes this capacity to discern because the word of God is characterizing you. This is abiding in Christ. This is keeping his commands. This is the spirit empowering you to walk in dependence upon him. This is the fruit of the spirit. This is the spiritual life. So what is a spiritual man? I have six things I want to say. First, someone who has the spirit which is from God. Someone who has the spirit which is from God, at least. Second, someone who has the Holy Spirit teaching his spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be filled by the Spirit with the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This isn't just when we're teaching the Word or when you're reading your Bible. This is when you're walking in your life. The Spirit is your paraclete. He is walking with you and you're walking in dependence upon Him and therefore you're abiding in Christ. Third, the spiritual man, this is not the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry. This is the filling ministry. He's talking about bringing forth that wisdom from God, that hidden wisdom to bear in your experience so that you have discernment. Fourth, in other words, someone who has the things of God in his thinking. Remember, that was the topic all along, the things, the things, the things that I hasn't seen or ear heard. It's the spiritual content that's being taught to your spirit, to your spirit by the Holy Spirit. Fifth, these things or the spiritual eternal wisdom from God result in the capacity to discern all things. I told you it was complicated. I told you Christian spirituality is hard because the, the, the key passage on it is a really challenging passage. 
The things of the spiritual eternal wisdom from God result in the capacity to discern all things. And sixth, thinking in terms of divine wisdom as modeled by the Spirit to our, our human spirit is a defining mark of Christian spirituality. Thinking in terms of divine wisdom. Thinking in terms of divine wisdom as mediated by the Holy Spirit to our spirit is a defining mark of Christian spirituality, if it isn't the definition. Now here's where Paul gets after him. And I, brethren, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual, but as to fleshly or carnal, characterized by the flesh, the sin nature. Okay? What, what does that look like as to babes in Christ? When he talks about carnality, he's talking about somebody that doesn't look or think like you have the discernment that comes from the spiritual wisdom that the apostles have to give. This is somebody that's not spiritual. It's a, it's a, it's a reference to their maturity, babies in Christ. What, why do I think that? I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. Now, I, I, I didn't come to the passage thinking this way about spirituality and carnality. But this is what he teaches, that carnality is a matter of maturity. But that's not my mechanical system. This is Paul. This is Jesus Christ telling us how to think about these things. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able, but indeed you're still not able even now. For you're still fleshly, you're still carnal. <clears throat> Sarkikos, this word here. When I say carnal, some of you think theology. When I say fleshly, some of you think fleshly. The word means meat. It's talking about your sin nature. That's what it means. You're acting like someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God in you, who doesn't have the new spirit that's being informed by the Holy Spirit. You don't have that spiritual life in your experience. You're still fleshly. What does it look like? For there is among you jealousy and strife and dissension. Now we talk about sin. We haven't talked about sin. We've been talking about knowledge and discernment and the distinction between the world and the God's thinking and his eternal blessing of his word. We've been talking about all these things. Now, for the first time, we're talking about sin. I know there's a problem in your spiritual life because of sins. And notice it's corporate, jealousy, strife, dissension. This is the problem in the collective. We see this among you all and you're behaving this way. He's kind of passing judgment on the group. Are you not fleshly? And according to man, are you not walking? Now, um, according to man, are you not walking? That means that I think you're acting like unbelievers to mere men, is my New America Standard paraphrase. To mere men. You're walking like mere men. Wow, we've, we've had a mouthful today. Biblical anthropology, spirituality, there's three kinds of people being described. Two of them are believers. One's a carnal believer. The other's a spiritual believer. The spiritual believer is portrayed at first as the believer. It's the norm. We're like, but I thought carnality was the norm. That's because you're not considering yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's because you're not presenting yourselves to God, uh, your, your instruments to God. Um, you're not presenting yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your instruments or your, your members as instruments to God of, uh, for righteousness. Um, that's because we're not living the life that God told us to live. Last thing I want to say, because this is the first shot at uh, this passage. Regards inevitability. Louis Berry Chafer wrote his book 100 years ago, 1918, He That Is Spiritual, about this passage and the consequences in the rest of the Bible. The spiritual, he called it, He That Is Spiritual. Chafer got in trouble with B.B. Warfield, the great theologian in Princeton in that day, 
for his book because, as Warfield said, he has two systems of theology fighting in his brain. He's trying to be Arminian about his spiritual life, but he's being Calvinist in his uh, salvation theology. In other words, if you're really a believer, says the reform system, it is inevitable that you will perform. But that doesn't seem to be what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They're carnal. They're not performing. They're failing. They're a disgrace. But not you, but not us, because we can see this, because we can look at this from an outside perspective and say, that's the problem. They don't value the word of God because they're not worshiping God, and yet they're believers. And there's your challenge. This is not inevitable. The spiritual life is not inevitable. What is inevitable is you're responsible for it. What's inevitable is that you have the Holy Spirit and he is either empowering you or convicting you. What's inevitable is that you have a new spirit that God gave you with a new responsibility and all the other things God did when you first believed, these things are all settled. What's inevitable is that you have a resurrection body on order. What's inevitable is that the Holy Spirit lives in you forever. What is not inevitable is that you'll walk by the Spirit, that you'll obey these commands, that you'll discern all things because the Spirit of God is working in you with some momentum. Be spiritual. Heavenly Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the spirituality to which you've called us, which is not, <clears throat> which is not the wisdom of this world. Let us humble ourselves before you, Father. Let us enjoy a clear conscience, knowing that that's what we're called to do. And Father, let us benefit from your work. Give us that discernment. We love the idea of being able to discern all things as your spirit enables us. In Jesus' name, amen.